I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate positive future a reality. If the world is going to make the switch from fossil fuels to clean energy, we're going to need lots of energy storage and a lot of lithium. The global transition to clean energy is expected to trigger a 40-fold increase in demand for lithium by 2040. Lithium is in high demand, but current methods for lithium extraction make it difficult and expensive to source. Conventional extraction methods take up lots of land, use lots of water and energy, and often have devastating environmental impacts. Traditional lithium extraction uses massive evaporation ponds where lithium-rich brine, meaning saline groundwater that is rich in lithium, is pumped to the surface and evaporated until it can be processed and extracted. These projects often require as much as 10,000 acres of land and only recover 40% of the lithium available in the brine. To make the lithium-ion batteries we need to power our electrified world, and more specifically to power the electrification of transportation, we'll need to source lithium in a way that doesn't harm the environment, yields tons of high-purity lithium concentrate, and uses as little land as possible. And that is exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Dave Snydacker, founder and CEO of Lilac Solutions, is building. Lilac's mission is to ramp up production of lithium to enable the transition to electric vehicles. To do that, Lilac has come up with a revolutionary way of extracting lithium. Lilac is solving the challenge associated with producing lithium from brine resources, which have suffered from long development periods, low recoveries, and environmental impact. Lilac uses an ion exchange plant, which is approximately 1,000 times smaller than the evaporation ponds it replaces. And we use a ceramic ion exchange bead to selectively absorb lithium from the brine and produce a higher purity lithium concentrate. Lilac Solutions created superior ion exchange beads using ceramic materials that absorb lithium from brine. Lithium-rich brine is pumped into a vessel containing the ion exchange beads, which absorb the lithium. Then hydrochloric or sulfuric acid is used to flush out the lithium to produce lithium chloride or sulfate. Those intermediate forms of lithium are then converted to lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, which gets used to make batteries. Traditional lithium brine projects are expensive and difficult to launch. It can take about 10 years to establish a new project. About 60% of the world's identified lithium resources are in South America. But in the last 25 years, only one new site has been built on the continent. Lilac exists because... Developers of lithium brine projects in South America have struggled immensely to bring online new supplies of lithium over the last 30 years. And to unlock these lithium brine projects, new technology is needed. Lilac Solutions was founded in 2016 and was based on research that Dave did for his PhD at Northwestern University. I spoke with Dave about his journey to becoming a founder, from his childhood on the beach in Rhode Island to leading seminars about battery technology at Northwestern, where a few provocative questions from fellow students put Dave on the path to create Lilac. 
Dave Steinacker, welcome to What It Takes. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Dave, we first connected about four years ago, so early days of Lilac, uh, which is also Oakland-based, as is Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. So I'm excited to have a fellow Oaklander on the show. Yeah, likewise. It's uh, great to be representing the East Bay here today. So Dave, starting way back, you grew up in Rhode Island in a small beach town and were interested in the environment from a really early age. Tell me about your childhood and tell me about your parents. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Rhode Island on the beach, which was a summer vacation spot for many people from New York and Boston, but was also a um, wonderful tight-knit community oriented around the ocean in every way. So everyone spent a lot of time on the beach, um, and I worked on the beach for many summers. Um, the, The beach and the ocean really drove not just the culture, but the economy. And when I started to learn about sea level rise and climate change, it it quickly became personal. Mm-hmm. And tell me about your parents. Were they environmentalists? What they do for work? Yeah, my parents certainly shared an environmental mindset. My dad was a historian, and I think that focus on history and deep time really shaped the way I think about changes on a hundred year time scale. And my mom was a pediatrician and, you know, as a professional caregiver, I think certainly shaped my mindset around health and the environment. And what were you like as a kid? And did you have a sense of what you would do for a career by the time you were in high school? I was very focused on science from a young age. I had a lot of, uh, chemists in my family and and people who had worked on energy technology and um it uh it didn't take me too long to piece together that I wanted to do a PhD I wanted it to be in uh an environmental area and so I was I was pretty scientifically focused from a young age Did you know you wanted to do a PhD even in high school I th- I think I was six years old when I decided I wanted to do a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> that might be setting a new record for what it takes guests. That's, I don't think I knew what a PhD was for much longer. Um, I love it. My dad, my dad had a PhD. Um, both my grandparents on my mom's side had PhDs and actually wrote scientific papers together. All my uncles did. So it was part of the family history. Um, so you took this early passion for chemistry and physical sciences to Wesleyan University, where you studied biochemistry and biophysics. Why Wesleyan? Why biochem and biophysics? And then what was your experience like in the program? Yeah, I was very interested in chemistry, and biochemistry was the most scientifically interesting branch of that. Learning about how our bodies and our brains work was just endlessly interesting for me. And I went to Wesleyan because I could pursue biochemistry at a very high level, but also pursue music and spend a lot of time playing music and continued that at Wesleyan. Perfect segue. When preparing for this conversation, I learned about Redwire Blackwire. If listeners search Redwire Blackwire on YouTube, besides a bunch of electrical videos, what will they find? Yeah. So look us up on Spotify. Um, Redwire Blackwire was my band in college and we recorded a couple albums. And um, between 
finishing and biochemistry and moving into materials engineering. I, I spent a year uh, touring and recording with Redwire Blackwire. So check us out. <laughs> and touring, this was like a year long tour across the country and eventually to Russia. Is that right? Yeah. So the the main stretch of touring, we did um, 30 cities across the US, Canada and Russia in about uh, just over two months and then continued playing gigs around the Northeast. I did watch the music video that I found on YouTube and really enjoyed it and saw young Dave playing the drums. <laughs> so after finishing this year-long rock band tour, as you said, you entered a PhD program in battery tech at Northwestern and joined the Wolverton Research Group. Was there an aha moment that made you want to make the switch from biochem in undergrad to advanced batteries for your PhD? Like that's a pretty big jump. Um, and then what was it like making the switch once you decided to do so? I was very scientifically minded and environmentally focused um, from a young age that continued through college. But I took me a little bit of time to figure out how I would really put those interests together. And, uh, you know, after I got back that from that tour, after I got back from Moscow, I spent some time thinking through what actually could I use my skill set on to advance the the climate mission? And with my background in biochemistry, the first most obvious option would be to go into agriculture or biofuels. But I saw how inefficient plants were at converting energy and was not very bullish on that as a scalable energy supply. And that forced me to look a, a bit further afield from biochemistry to solar panels and batteries. And the efficiency associated with solar panels and batteries was striking compared to photosynthesis. And so I sort of retrained myself. I shifted into materials engineering for grad school. At that point, I had never taken an engineering class, never taken a materials science class, and um I was a bit of an idiot from the early days, but uh, my PhD advisor was very patient and supportive and uh, eventually uh, came up to speed and developed a lot of expertise in battery technology. And you did ultimately choose battery tech over working in solar. Why did you choose batteries? Yeah, I was looking at battery technology versus solar or versus hydrogen and solar had a good solution that was already scaling in silicon solar panels. Uh, hydrogen had fundamental inefficiencies and the Tesla Roadster had just started to catch on. And um, when I entered grad school, um, the Obama, Obama stimulus was um, just starting to get rolled out. Um, with a lot of funding going into battery technology. And so that that seemed like the future for transportation. And um, and that's the direction I went. Hmm. And you saw Roadster at some point, right? And this was part of the, the, the moment that you decided to go the battery route? I did. I did. I had, I had not spent much time in California at that point. The, the first time I came to California, I was walking through San Francisco with my brother and he pointed out this little Tesla Roadster and I said, what the hell is that? And that's an electric car. That's the future. And, and, and shortly thereafter, I was working on batteries. 
So I understand the seed of the idea for Lilac came from your PhD, but also from the seminars that you led around the future of battery tech with the Northwestern Energy and Sustainability Consortium, which you founded. What happened at those seminars? Yeah, those seminars were a great part of my experience at Northwestern. And I got to work with a lot of very um, smart and passionate people working in the energy transition. With a handful of other PhD students, we put together a seminar series to teach MBA students about different energy technologies and manufacturing processes. And I was leading seminars on battery technology, battery manufacturing, electric vehicles, stationary grid storage. And it was through those seminars where I started to get questions about the, the battery supply chain. At that point, I was becoming an expert in battery technology, but did not have much understanding of the supply chain. And I started to get questions about the environmental impact of battery materials, about the scalability. And it was in the process of trying to get good answers for those MBA students about where these battery metals were going to come from, where I realized the massive gap in the supply chain and the, and the wonderful opportunity to start a, ultimately start a company, which came later. And tell me about your PhD research at the time and how that fit into these questions you were getting at the seminar. My PhD research was primarily focused on lithium-ion cathode materials. So many listeners will have heard of high nickel cathodes like NCA and NMC or iron-based cathodes like LFP. That was the core of my PhD funded by the U.S. Department of Energy and Ford Motor Company. I also worked on advanced lithium metal solid state battery technology and also alternative chemistries like sodium ion and magnesium ion. And it was through that research where I saw how difficult it was to make batteries even a little bit better. And in fact, batteries were already quite good and we just needed more supplies of metals to produce more batteries. So after completing your PhD at Northwestern, you had this idea for a company, but weren't exactly sure what it would look like. Do you remember the moment that you had the initial idea for Lilac and then what was happening in your life at that time? Yeah. So I was um, about four years into my PhD where when I realized that there was this massive gap in the lithium supply chain and that there were new technologies, particularly ion exchange, which could close the supply gap if we were able to develop the right ion exchange materials. So I made an initial attempt at that at Northwestern. Um, and then later after leaving the university and starting Lilac, ultimately um, developed uh, the lilac ion exchange materials and product uh, here in the East Bay. Um, The moment where I realized that I had the right skill set to work on this problem was when my wife was pregnant with our first child and 
I sort of, I, I was staying up, you know, very late at night, um, just reading absolutely everything on the internet related to energy and climate and had been in a, a wormhole just completely focused on lithium for a couple of weeks. And I sort of stumbled out of my office in a daze and looked at my wife and told her, I think I could produce lithium from the ocean. And I was, I was totally wrong about it coming from the ocean. It, you know, we're, we're not producing from seawater, but that was really the moment where I had realized that this class of ion exchange materials based on ceramic lithium metal oxide materials had a lot of promise for lithium extraction if only we could come up with the right materials. Okay, so you have this sleep-deprived, delirious kind of breakthrough idea and then decide to apply for a bunch of grants and you are rejected from every single one except one uh, from the Small Business Innovation Research Program or SBIR, which awarded you 150 k in 2017. What did they give you the money to do and what was your idea at the time? Yeah. So at that point, I had left Northwestern and was out in the Bay Area and um, I was desperate to get some funding to start prototyping a product. And I applied for about nine grants that would allow me to do that, was rejected from all of them, and was awarded one grant that would allow me to do more computational modeling work. How did you feel about that? Because that's not exactly what you wanted, right? I was desperate to get away from computers at that point. Um, you know, computer-based modeling can provide some really wonderful insights into materials engineering, but it's not sufficient to develop a product. Um, so, um, you know, I was very grateful to have the funding and it allowed me to work full time. So it was, you know, thrilled for the support and the validation from the U.S. Department of Energy. But I did have to immediately go out and raise private capital to actually build the product, of course, and um, and and so did that. And you had a really unconventional approach to this fundraising. You know, most founders, you go out, you raise a seed round. Uh, you you didn't exactly do that. What did you do? I was a complete outsider to the Bay Area. I had just moved out here. Um, I knew a few people who had started companies from Northwestern, but didn't have the the connectivity to Bay Area VCs or the battery industry out here. So I was really starting from scratch. But I, I was an expert in in batteries. Um, I, I had a PhD in materials engineering, and I and I you know had a great problem to solve. And so I traveled to a lot of different conferences. I talked to anybody who would talk to me, and was fortunate to have investment from some uh, you know wonderful people early on. Um, including initially friends and family, and then high net worth individuals. Um, our first outside investor was somebody who had worked at ExxonMobil for 30 years and just had a, a, a passion for innovation and strong engineering. And, um, and uh, you know, we were thrilled to, to, to have that check come in and, and then, you know, expanded our fundraising. Got it. And so I understand. So it's 2017. You've decided to start this company. You got this SBIR grant. And then you're just hustling at conferences, trying to meet people who will give you like 50K at a time. 
And that gets you enough capital, you know, pretty much every month. You're like keeping yourself afloat and you're able to pay to get the lab space that you need. Um, but you're raising 50K checks at a time, eventually totaling 800K, which you called your seed one. Uh, what was your pitch at that point to these 50K investors? And describe the problem that you were pitching to them and describe what you were pitching as the solution to them at that time. Yeah, so the the pitch back in 2017 was not too different from what it is today, although our capabilities and our scope has grown substantially. Um, the pitch was um, that the electric vehicle industry was going to face a acute shortage of lithium that hadn't materialized yet, but it certainly has since. And that conventional mining processes were not going to be able to close that supply gap in an efficient way, that most of the world's lithium was in brines, and that Lilac had a unique technology to produce that lithium out of brine resources and deliver it to the market. At that point, we had filed a first patent and validated that with a proof of concept. Um, and. We were raising money to um, build at larger scales and produce more data validating the performance of the technology. And in terms of that problem that you were pitching to investors, in the last 25 years, only one new lithium brine project has been brought into production in South America. That's right. So most of the world's lithium resource is in South America. There's only been one new project that's come online into production in the last 25 years. and it is producing just 0.1% of its resource per year. So we at Lilac believe that these projects can ramp up massively and that we can also expand to many, many more sites in South America and around the world. And as if there's only four sites in production in South America, right? That's right. There's only four in, in South America, but there's more than 50 good sites that could be developed. And there are also dozens of sites across the US and Europe and around the world um, where we can source lithium from new geographies. And at those sites, lithium recovery is about 40%, whereas with lilac, it's 80 to 90%. Is that correct? Traditionally, with the conventional methods, lithium recoveries have been less than 50%. And so there's massive amounts of land used. It's a very slow process. And in the end, uh, much of the lithium is lost in that process. We accelerate the processing time, accelerate the commissioning and ramp up period by many years and also double the amount of lithium that we can produce from every barrel of brine pumped out of ground. And that's even for a high-grade project. When you look at a low-grade project, the conventional methods are impossible. And it's a matter of, can you build a project? Or will this just be an um, a, a empty piece of desert? Coming up, Dave and Lilac enter the prototyping phase and sign their first customer. But first, a word from our sponsors. What It Takes is brought to you by SPAN, makers of the award-winning SPAN panel, a smart electrical panel that enhances how homeowners interact with their energy. SPAN has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world. 
backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience from Tesla, Sunrun, and Google Nest. I had Span founder and CEO Arch Rao on what it takes last year for a great conversation about the future of residential energy. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy-efficient upgrades to your home like a heat pump? Wired recommends Span Panel as a borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel, almost essential if you have a backup battery. Span was recently top five in Forbes 2023 list of America's best startup employers and just closed a $96 million Series B2 funding round, bringing total funding to date to $231 million. Interested in advancing your career at one of the premier companies in climate technology or getting Span installed in your home? Visit span.io to learn more. What It Takes is also brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to accelerate the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions. Like Ample, who are solving how fleets get electric energy in cities. And like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. Okay, so you've got this idea. You've got enough capital to keep you going for a month or two at a time. And you were in this unique position that you got a customer really early who was buying into just this prototyping stage. Tell me about that, but then also tell me about how scrappy were you at this point and like what materials are you using to build the prototype? Give me a snapshot into that. Yeah. So shortly after we completed our proof of concept, we were able to sign on a first pain customer to do a six-month lab scale demonstration project and provide engineering to the customer's project. And um, that was a very exciting time. And the company really benefited from the pressure to deliver on schedule. And we did. Um, And yeah, what materials are you using to build out your lab at this point and to build out the prototype? And then what did prototype testing and iterations look like in those early days? Like how rapid are you kind of going through those iterations? Yeah. in In the early prototyping, we're using, literally there's like a dumpster in like out behind the building and we're pulling like wood panels and, uh, you know, plastic bottles and um, buying $10 fish bumps on Amazon to do the first prototyping. Um, what we built for the, for the customer project ended up being a, a bit nicer than that. But we were very, very scrappy and low cost from day one. And then, yeah, what did the prototyping process look like? Yeah. And um, we had a focus on building and testing quickly. Um, we didn't sit around modeling things endlessly or you know debating whether something might work we were extremely hands-on extremely focused on um creating new materials testing them in the lab Um, everything was super technical all the time and and we just went very very fast 
And in those first few months of that rapid iteration and testing, what were you seeing? What were the results? Like, were you happy? Yeah. In the, in the, in the first few months, we, we basically were on the schedule where um, every week we would test a, a new ion exchange bead. So on Monday, we would make the ion exchange material. On Tuesday, we would process it into a porous bead. On Wednesday, we would put it in acid. Thursday, put it in brine to extract lithium. And on Friday, we would take all those samples down to the environmental science building on the UC Berkeley campus and put it into their ICP analysis machine. And, um, you know, week after week, we really, really struggled for the, for the first few months there. And it was uh, a very challenging time. Um, and, uh, but once we got through that period and we had something working, it, it felt amazing and we were able to, you know, really scale from there. What changed? What, what was the turning point at which you started to see the results that you wanted? Yeah, you know, um, it was starting to develop the, the material, which we, you know, really you know, perfected over a number of years, but also, you know, basic things like the, the analytical work of being able to measure lithium at those very low concentrations is fairly challenging. So even getting set up to do accurate chemical analysis has been a challenge, not just for Lilac, but across the industry. All right. So you've got this capital, you got your idea, you're doing the prototype, you even have an initial customer. Um, hiring is one of the hardest parts of building a startup. What were the first roles that you hired for? What did those early days look like? And in hindsight, you know, what did you learn from, from those early hires? Yeah. So our first hire was Amos Indranata from UC Berkeley. We hired him when he was... Um, 19. Nice. And Couldn't go he, to the happy hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, and he, he finished his uh, double major in chemical and materials engineering from UC Berkeley about six months later and joined full time. And he's still leading our uh, biggest technology team. Um, and then we, we had some, um, I think we, you know, for a while struggled to find the right people to scale the business you know, obviously, um, starting a starting a hard tech company in 2016, 2017, it was before the big ESG boom. There wasn't a lot of capital in the space, and so you had to find folks who are very adventurous. And um, but eventually, uh, you know, we found a great team, and um, we've been we've been uh, you know fortunate to have people like Amos. Uh, from day one, and, and Nick Goldberg as well, who uh, joined as an advisor very early on, worked part-time for us, helped to close our first customer deals, our first institutional investments, and continues on uh, as Lilac's chief legal op- operator and still sits on the board of directors with me. So about two years after raising that eventual 800k seed one in 2019, you raised a 2.5 million seed two. Who participated, and what was it like raising the seed two? Yeah, the 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 seed two part of it was a continuation of what I had been doing previously of fifty thousand dollar checks <laughs> a, a, a couple a couple per month, and um, like kind of masochistic, but I guess it worked. Yeah, and this was the period when all these um, climate funds were first getting together, so 
Breakthrough Energy Ventures Primate Impact Fund were just forming their funds and making their very first investments. So part of it was, uh, you know, the the birth of the rebirth of clean tech investing in 2017, 2018, 2019. Um, and as those funds came together, we, we were able to move from high net worth individuals to institutional capital. And um, obviously that's a, a lot more uh, efficient when you can get a, a million dollar check. <laughs> Indeed. And so, and those are two that, that joined you, Breakthrough Energy and Prime Coalition. Is that right? That's right. In the, in the seed one and seed two rounds. So in terms of your business model and what you were pitching to these investors, you know, you could just sell your ion exchange beads or sell the finished product, the lithium carbonate or the lithium hydroxide to battery makers. But instead, you decided to do this joint ownership in the projects that you develop. Tell me more about the business model and how did you come to that decision? Yeah. So one of our most advanced projects is in Argentina with our partner, Lake Resources, and they acquired the Catchy Brine project a number of years ago. Um, it's a very large resource that can support 50,000 tons per annum of lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide production. That's equivalent to about two Tesla gigafactories um, or a million EVs per year. So very large scale project, but the lithium concentration is significantly lower than um, anything else in South America, about you know, three to four X lower. Um, and so Lake Resources very early on took a, um, a strong focus on finding the right technology for their project. Uh, we did a lot of test work uh, to, to prove that the technology worked well and would enable low production cost at their project site. And then as we moved toward an on-site pilot plant, um, you know, we offered to ultimately become an equity partner in the, in the project by investing into the project alongside Lake Resources. So rather than asking them to simply place a bet on our technology, um, we wanted to put our money where our mouth was and invest um, into their project um, to deploy our technology at the site. Uh, we've been very successful with that. And just a couple months ago, we successfully completed pilot operations at the Catchy site, uh, achieving all the technical and operational milestones and um, increasing our equity position in that project. So um, we are very well aligned with our partners as an equity owner in the asset um, and excited to develop that project together with Lake Resources. Uh, congrats on that. And this is where you successfully produced 2,500 kilograms of lithium carbonate equivalents. And therefore, you were able to increase your ownership in the Catchy project to 20%. Tell me a little bit more about the projects you're working on and how do they vary? I understand that you don't just sell the commodity, you design, build, and operate the extraction part of some of these plants. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So we're working on seven projects across the US, Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. So we're working on the number one largest lithium resource on the planet and the number two largest lithium resource on the planet, and four other projects in South America. Um, we 
support the resource owners to develop their asset and maximize the value of that asset. And we often focus on not just maximizing production, but minimizing environmental impact. And water usage is the major concern. So we engage with these resource owners to put in place an engineering package and design for the overall plant that is ultra water efficient, and then partner with them to develop the assets toward commercial production. What is it like to say that, that you're working on the biggest lithium extraction plant in the world? <laughs> like, you know, the company was only started in 2016. Yeah, we're, we've been very fortunate to have great relationships with a number of very large resource owners in South America. And um, we're you know, committed to uh, supporting them in, a, in any way we can to, to help them maximize production. And if I'm on site at one of these plants, walk me through, like, what am I seeing? What's the, the technology that I'm witnessing? What's exactly happening at every step in the process? Sure. So w- when you arrive at these project sites, you know, first of all, the, the journey in is just stunningly beautiful. So um, you'll, you'll um, fly into South America. The next day you'll fly up to northern Argentina or to northern Chile um, and, and drive up into the mountains, uh, into the high Andes, into the high desert. And You'll pass by volcanoes that are 20,000 feet above sea level. Uh, the road might take you up to 16,000 feet above sea level. You'll have oxygen in the car. Um, and you'll be you know, surrounded by local communities that have you know, made their livelihood off the land and off of mining for hundreds of years. And... As you arrive into these communities, into these landscapes, it's you know beautiful high volcanoes on either side of a big desert basin, and the brine is found underground um, near surface um, in a in a in a reservoir um, underground. And when you arrive to the processing plant, you'll see a a shallow water well pro- uh, pumping brine out from under the ground. And pumping it to our plant, um, the plant will filter out any you know dirt or gravel from the brine. Um, the brine then will go through a lithium extraction module, which basically looks like a series of large tanks. And it flows through those tanks, where the beads absorb the lithium out of the brine, and then we flow dilute acid through that module. That produces lithium chloride or lithium sulfate, um, which is then concentrated. For a commercial scale project, you would then convert that lithium concentrate into a finished white powder, lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide, and ship that to a battery cathode manufacturer. For the pilot plants that we have operating currently, we do that downstream processing offsite. So we produce a a concentrate, uh, ship that to a um, a uh, offsite pilot location where it's converted to the finished product. And any battery OEMs that you're able to mention as existing customers, or so we have a number of strategic investors um, 
in the company and a number of offtake partners that are interested in the projects. Um, we're not currently selling commercial scale volumes of material, but we are providing samples of battery grade lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide to those end users in anticipation of commercial production in the near term. Speaking of strategic investors, in 2020, Lilac raised a 20 million Series A, and then in 2021, you raised 150 million Series B. Uh, who participated in those rounds? And when you reflect on fundraising, what have you learned? And especially about this piece on bringing in strategics, how did you decide to do so? Yeah, so the Series A round was led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and Dave Danielson at Breakthrough had invested all the way back in 2017 and um, met with us every month for almost two and a half years before leading the Series A. And uh, Dave's the best. I think he's been mentioned more than any other investor on the show. <laughs> the Engine also invested in that Series A round. They are the VC firm out of MIT. And the Series B was led by T. Rowe Price and Lower Carbon Capital. So Clay from Lower Carbon joined our board after the Series B. Um, and tell me about the strategics that joined. Sumitomo and SK Materials, as well as Mercuria and BMW also invested in the Series B round. And based on that experience fundraising so far from your early days hustling 50K checks at conferences to your 150 million Series B, what have you learned and what advice would you give to founders that are raising? I think the major learning is to always surround yourself with good people who can support you both on the um, employee side to make sure you have people you can count on to run the business while you're focused on fundraising as well as on the investment side. And, and I've been very fortunate to have awesome board members from Breakthrough Energy Ventures and The Engine and Lower Carbon who are you know really in our corner and helping us build the business. And zooming out, what kind of impact do you think the Inflation Reduction Act will have on the lithium extraction industry and on LILAC? The main impact of the Inflation Reduction Act will be to drive the electric vehicle market. And we saw lithium prices go up by almost 10x between 2020 and 2022. That added $4,000 to the cost of an electric car. And then the government stepped in and said, here's $7,000. So cover the cost of the 10x more expensive lithium. And here's another $3,000 to grow the market even faster. So we're in a situation now where customers love electric cars. They're trying to buy them as fast as they can. And the electric vehicle makers are scrambling to put the supply chain in place. And when you reflect on building the company so far, if you could go back in time to 2016 when you were starting Lilac, what advice would you give yourself? I'd say always work on hiring a year before you think you'll need somebody to come on because it takes that long to find somebody with the right skill set in mining and chemicals um, to join a startup like Lilac. So we've been fortunate to hire 
some really amazing people from mining and chemicals and manufacturing. Um, but there are not as many skilled professionals in these industries in the United States as there are in some other countries overseas. And uh, particularly in California, uh, you need to work hard to find the people with the right skill sets. Has your leadership style changed since you started Lilac? My leadership style has changed by necessity. I've always been very involved with the technology from day one, but now that the company is more than 200 people, of course, I can only be so involved. And um, so I've become very efficient at uh, managing my calendar. I have a great chief of staff, Sophia Mock, who helps me to do that and is really an essential part of running the business. Can you speak to your experience being a white man leading a company in climate tech, which is majority white and male? How do you think about that? The mining and chemicals industries are not as diverse as they ought to be, and that's been painful to watch and to be a part of. Uh, we always are striving to build a diverse team. Um, but the reality is when we need to hire people into v VP level positions that have designed and built and operated mining and chemicals projects for a number of decades, it's difficult to find a diverse pool of candidates. So Lilac has very strong values in diversity and inclusion. And yet I do feel that in many ways we've failed to live up to our values because of the difficulty of, of recruiting um, a, a diverse pool of candidates in mining and chemicals. So it's something we're always working on. And it's, it's um, you know, I'm very optimistic because when you look at the younger generation of people with zero to 10 years of experience, um, we see an incredibly diverse pool of candidates. And that's certainly reflected in those um, positions at Lilac. But when you get up into 20, 30 years of experience, um, that's been more of a challenge and, and something we continue to work on. So you are a partner to your wife. You have not one, not two, but three kids. Uh, what is it like being a partner, a parent, a founder, and a CEO all at the same time? Yeah, that's intense. There's, <laughs> there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, time to do nothing. Everything is very busy all the time. So yeah, I have a, a eight-year-old who is born the month before I started research on lithium extraction and a four-year-old and a two-year-old and getting the work-life balance right is challenging. I wasn't able to take any significant parental leave for my second and third children, which was tough, but I try to be disciplined at making sure I get a very early start and then can get home in the in the evening to spend time with them every day. And most of my weekends are pretty boring. I just sort of hang around the house with the kids and go to the park. <laughs> that actually sounds great. I haven't mentioned this yet on the podcast, but I am 
20 days away from my due date with our first kid. So by the time listeners hear this, I will either be in labor or (laughs) have had a baby. Uh, Any advice for a first-time parent who is also a founder and CEO? Yeah, well, you know, obviously kids are more important than anything else and you'll have an amazing time and the hardest thing initially is sleep. So I'll be praying for you that you get some sleep and it it only gets better. (laughs) Uh, If we're talking prayers and it only gets better, I I have a sense of how hard it'll be, but also how how awesome. Uh, What will the future of lithium production look like in a decade? In a decade, we will necessarily be securing very large quantities of lithium from brine using new technology. A decade from now, the electric vehicle industry will be big enough that there's no way to supply those volumes from conventional mines, and new technology is going to be essential to closing that gap. And if Lilac succeeds, where will the company be in a decade? Lilac will be the biggest producer of lithium in the world in partnership with resource owners. Sounds like you're well on your way already. All right, we're going to close with our high voltage round. You are familiar with this, being a listener of the show. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick like five seconds or less. Starting with, Dave, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would be a snow leopard because they... Um, are beautiful. Well, not that I'm beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there you go. Oh, no, Uh, own it. We're keeping it in. All right. right. (laughs) I would be a snow leopard because they're fuzzy and wonderful and um, uh, majestic. And I just, I don't know if I can aspire to that, but I I love snow leopards. Can aspire to whatever you want. And uh, I think you are the first what it takes snow leopard. Um, What inspires you? I'm inspired by leaving behind a functioning planet Earth for my kids. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Batteries. (laughs) Let's say it can't be batteries. (laughs) Um, Jet fuel. (laughs) All right, I'll, I'll take it. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My wife and my parents and my PhD advisor giving me a chance as a chemist with no background in engineering. What's their name, your advisor? Chris Wolverton. Ah, nice. Uh, Tell me about a specific time you've failed. And don't do the thing every guest does, which is like, I fail every day. No, no, like specific. I've often failed in sales processes. It's really tough to break into the mining industry and, uh, you know, convince people to take a chance on a new technology. And so I've, I've often failed with that. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Delegation. I always want to delegate and I am always nervous about doing that. What's the best investment you've ever made? Lilac has made some fantastic investments in, in technology and um, into our, into our um, pipeline of projects and um, I'm really excited to see those advancing in the coming years. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I thought that the world did not have the technology to decarbonize 
heavy industry. And over the last two or three years, I've seen a number of amazing companies born and scaled, which have real potential to decarbonize very tough sectors. When are you your best self? I have two best selves. I've always been a bit split in that. I have a professional best self, which is early in the morning. And I have a best parent, which is typically later in the day when I can relax and focus on the kids. What is your worst trait? Man, these are hard. (laughs) Right? I know. (laughs) My worst trait is that I want to go very, very fast and sometimes don't take the time to bring everybody along with me. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Stopping carbon emissions. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? My kids. What would you say to them if they were in front of you right now? I hope you go into mining. (laughs) Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They can't get the technology to work. If you really knew me, you would know... I'm happiest on the beach in Rhode Island. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Maybe gone to engineering school for undergrad instead of chemistry. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Lilac. I'm most proud of... My wife. What's her name? Stephanie. Last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is... Good technology and dedication. Dave Snydacker, thank you so much for joining me on What It Takes. I've loved following your journey and I'm so impressed with everything you're doing and I look forward to continuing to follow your success. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me and I'm excited to continue listening to the podcast over the years. Dave Snydacker is the founder and CEO of Lilac Solutions. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd like to thank What It Takes listener, Lady Alta D, who said, if you're intrigued by the movers and shakers of climate tech who have the vision to create our climate-positive future, then this show is for you. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at joinpowerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you are a first-time or a long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every single review, and we read some of our favorites on this show. And if you have a friend or a colleague who you think would like this episode, please send them the link. I'm our executive editor, Isabel Lee, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Branda Hernandez is our producer. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.